Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I was perfect. I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, a podcast about movies nominated for Best Picture, specifically those nominated for Best Picture in 2010. Well, at the 2010, 2011 ceremony for the 2010 movies. And this is the second episode in our 2010 series where we will be discussing Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. Black Swan. Our second... Lovely little ballet movie, right? Just... I was just gonna say our second ballet movie in uh, serious film people history. Yeah, we're huge ballet fans here. Um, How many more uh, best picture nominees include or feature heavily ballet? hmm. Uh, And also feature color in the title. Was Billy Billy Elliot? I think was just a director nomination. I don't think that was a picture nomination. That wasn't. Yeah, that wasn't best. That wasn't a best picture. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's ballet. Yeah, yeah, was Turning Point a best picture nomination? I don't know what that is. That sounds I'll right. I'll turn to TJ for that one. Okay. It sounds right, but I don't know. Yeah. So this is, uh, I think, more popular in the modern day sense than The Red Shoes or Turning Point or even possibly Billy Elliot. Um, at least among, I'll say among non-serious film people. This is a very, very popular movie among the normie crowd and among the film crowd, I think, mm-hmm. too. Uh, this is, I think, one of the one of the more ubiquitous movies we've covered so far what, what do you think ken uh i honestly don't know i mean at the time this came out i remember it, it kind of shaking the ground a little bit because it was unexpected i mean ironically if you know anything about darren aronofsky you should have had some expectations this was going to be a very different kind of ballet movie but i think a lot of people when it first came out thought oh it's going to be a ballet drama about competition and you know, ballerinas kind of going up against each other and maybe a little bit about the artistic process and striving for perfection. They do and... go up against each other in more <laughs> ways than one. <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, well, that's what I'm talking about. That, that I think, I think that surprised some people, some audiences, um, to the point this night, the nice little ballet movie did much better with younger audiences than it did with the older audiences who probably, if they showed up the first weekend probably word of mouth prevented more of them from going later on. Okay, well, you just mentioned what audiences were expecting back then. You actually also talked about the older audiences and younger audiences. So you, as an older audience member, Ken, back in 2010, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> take me back to 2010. Uh, were you aware of this when it was in production, when it was announced? Or like, did you go see it in theaters when it came out? Like, tell me back to 2010, so, to December of 2010 when this came out. So I actually, I, uh, I, had, I had some inkling the movie was coming out. I was aware of it before it was released. Um, I knew Aronofsky had a movie coming out. I knew Portman was in it. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'd have to look at uh, the background on the film. I can't remember which fest it played. Um, but I, I, I can't remember either. I had, I had heard some rumblings out of the film fests. And I actually saw this in November at a screening at the St. Louis Film Festival. Early? Yeah. that was not out yet. Yeah, no, we saw it. I played f- Venice. It premiered at Venice. Sorry. Okay. Um, yeah, so this would have been a geez this would have been like two months after it played at venice um i took Brittany and i both went so i took my then girlfriend now wife um we we were down in st louis for the weekend from college and i got tickets to the film fest it was at the high point theater i can remember Woo. going in and um i was actually quite excited there were a lot of people in the there was plenty it was a full house at the high point uh, if anybody remembers uh, joe williams from the st louis post-dispatch 
Uh, R.I.P. I, I yeah. said a few rows behind uh, Joe Williams. I was very excited about seeing him. Um, and I distinctly remember my favorite part about the experience. I didn't know exactly what to expect from the film. Neither did Brittany. And there was um, your normal film fest support. Like the crowd was made up of a lot of people who helped sponsor the film fest. And this was one of the bigger movies. And so the population was on the older side. Rich, old, mm-hmm. white White, people. yes. And there was an older couple sitting behind us, very, very nicely dressed for their film fest, you know, outing. It was like a Friday or Saturday night. A night of the ballet. They, exactly. And they were, she was, she was clearly excited before the movie uh, about seeing this ballet movie. He was less excited. Um, after the movie, they seemed shocked, just absolutely <laughs> stunned. Because her reaction, <laughs> I remember as we left, was, I didn't realize this was that kind of movie. And her husband was like, well, I actually liked it. Stop it, TJ. <laughs> TJ's do, doing obscene hand gestures to those uh, on the auto medium. Go ahead, Ken. <laughs> it was, the, the, the older woman was just shocked. She was floored. This movie was not at all what she expected. Um, I'm not even sure ultimately if she ended up liking the movie. It's just she was verbally expressing how put off. And I remember the scene we'll, get, we'll talk about shortly. And anybody who's seen the movie knows exactly which scene I'm going to talk, what I'm referring to. There was an audible gasp coming from behind me during that scene and uh well it's intense <laughs> was the gas from him or her it was her oh it was her uh. um yeah he didn't seem as thrown by the movie at the end of it if, like i said he seemed to be more pleased with it than he did before the movie started you and me both brother tj what was your experience with this movie in 2010 and beyond i saw it at the plaza frontenac theater um <laughs> And I recall which is it? which is famously peopled, uh, patronized by uh, the older crowd. So yes. and, to Ken's point, and a bit of the posh crowd. So on the way in, you can get uh, biscotti to dip in your coffee, um, or you can get gluten-free cookies. Both of which I've gotten before. Neither of which for Black Swan. I'm just trying to paint a picture of of uh, what a posh little theater this is. And it was mildly packed. Like, I don't think it was packed-packed, but it was pretty well attended. Um, I remember the first time I saw this movie, I was really, really blown away by it because it's very intense. And I felt like I was hooked nearly the entire time. Um, Very anxious throughout. And when it's over, I had that feeling of, oh my gosh, it's over. Like, it just, uh, I I thought it was moving. Um, Yeah, I, I, it was, it was a movie that I saw kind of at the right time to have that experience with it. But then I only saw it, like, I think two other times since then. Fun fact, my Blu-ray copy of Black Swan has uh, French on the spine and on the front because Mm. I bought it in Canada when I lived in Canada and I watched it there. Um, So, Is it a Region 2 or is it still Region 1? Nope, nope, Region 1, Region 1. Yeah, they're they're not that crooked up there, but uh, they put some French on there. Oh, I was gonna, so. is it at least English and French then? Because you, yes, you would yes. have bought it in British Columbia, which is further away from French Canada than we are. Correct. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I don't remember the exact specifics of what theater I was in when I saw it, but I definitely saw it in theaters, and I think I also saw it with my uh, college girlfriend. Uh, we did not get married the way that Ken married his <laughs> college girlfriend, but uh, probably I do because remember... of this movie. I do remember, and I think I alluded to this in the 127 Hours episode, which we recorded a while ago, Peep Behind the Curtains. I don't exactly remember if I shared this anecdote or not, but while watching Black Swan in the theater, um, I just, like, 
had my hand on my then girlfriend's like leg and her jeans got damp from my sweaty palms because I was so nervous watching this movie. <laughs> like I was, I was very nervous and I had like a physiological reaction, sweaty palms throughout. And I want to talk about how scary or not scary it is a little later, but um, just real quick, like I think this was a very big deal immediately. Um, it made a lot of money. Uh, Budget thirteen million, worldwide gross three hundred and twenty nine million, including one hundred and seven domestic. So it did very well overseas. Um, it never made more than eight million in a weekend, and it made one hundred and seven domestic. So it just like had really really good legs and really good word of mouth, and just kind of kept building and building. It has a lot of really good legs, actually. Yes, a whole a whole <laughs> line of them, and feet. So many shots of feet in speed. Yeah, but not not the not the not the, the powerful, Tarantino. nimble, and sometimes bloody yeah. feet uh, with taped toes and webbed toes. Anyway, um, <laughs> but like so, this this made a big splash, and but not only did it make a lot of money, I think it like kind of warmed its way into the culture and kind of hasn't really left. Um, this came out when we were sophomores, no juniors in college. We were juniors in college when this came out. And, um, I know people who were black swan for Halloween mm-hmm. the following Halloween. And, uh, I still know people who are still black swan for Halloween now, 13 years later. It just, it like just kind of hasn't gone Portman? away. <laughs> no, I mean, just dude, just scroll through Instagram on Halloween. Like it just. It, it's still around. Huh. The the people are still aware of this movie. And like, if you read the letterbox reviews, which I will later, um, people seem to really like it and really relate to it. And again, like it hits with people who were our age when, you know, in college, when it came out, it hits with college people. Now it just, it stayed ubiquitous, I think in the intervening time that's passed. And um, I was listening to, this is this was years ago, but I was listening to some like random NPR thing. I think it's about climate change, and they were like interviewing people at a conference. And uh, Darren Aronofsky happened to be there because he's a, he's a climate activist uh, in addition to being a filmmaker. And they just kind of like caught him on mic, like introducing himself to like another climate activist. And the way he introduced himself was, uh, "I'm Darren Aron- I'm Darren Aronofsky. I'm a filmmaker. I made Black Swan." <laughs> so like that's the movie that he goes to to like. If, if he only has 10 seconds to explain to someone who he is, he says, I made Black Swan. I was going to say, it's a little surprising that that's the one he he assumes is going to reach a large audience. Because when we when we were in college, now before, this movie, as you said, came out our junior year. But if you go back most of our, our time in college, Requiem would have been the Aronofsky Requiem film that yeah. hits more with college audiences. Which, with a certain crowd, I think, is still probably the Aronofsky movie reference of choice. But, like, I don't know, man. Like I think Black Swan might be like the his legacy, you know the mm. the first the first movie in his obit- obituary might be Black Swan for you know just for me it's uh the the reference movie for him is the wrestler I think that's sure. his best movie but we're gonna talk about the wrestler yes uh Requiem for a Dream really effed me up uh, I watched it in my parents' basement by myself with the lights off and you want to talk about sweating my goodness. Uh, and I've watched it two more times, and it's still even when you know what's coming in there, it just really gets under your skin. Uh, Oof, very powerful story and very powerful filmmaking. That like the filmmaking that's like very in your face and like effective. Mm-hmm. I feel like under the skin was maybe a little too on the nose for describing an Aronofsky mm-hmm. film there, TJ. Yeah. But um, is it just? By the way, we'll, I assume we will, we'll talk about Aronofsky, but we've got to discuss like Black Swan and before. 
versus the three or so films he's made since then because black swan might also be the last really high mark for an aronofsky well, film let's 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 put a pin in the wrestler but otherwise talk about aronofsky because you just brought him up so he, he made a movie called pie in black and white for very little money that like i think got into sundance and uh kind of made a name for himself have you guys seen pie i, I yeah. like it it's really good yeah, I've seen it. or it's, it's not really. I mean, it's solid. I don't know if I'd say it's really good. It's really good for being like made for like ten, ten, ten thousand dollars, something like that. And it's one of those movies that when you watch it, you're like, oh yeah, this guy was. This guy was gonna. I make can it. see. Yeah. I can see Aronofsky's like. I can see the path ahead of him. Like the the kernels of the rest of his career are all in Pie. I think. Um, have you seen Pie, Ken? I have not seen Pie. I'm aware of it, okay. but I've it's still good. never seen it. I, I enjoy like especially the directors that are still working that I still enjoy. I, I like checking out their first movie just to see. I mean, to, to what we just said, like if it was there in the first movie, and it usually is. You know, uh, Chris Nolan's following. <laughs> you can see it all. Uh, Aronofsky's Pie, Coen Brothers' Blood Simple, Hard Eight by PTA. Like it's you know it's all there. It's good good stuff. Um, I'd put it in like those kinds of categories of like a really solid debut from a mo- from a director that would eventually go on to bigger and better things. That's how I'd call what I would call Pie. Wrecking for a Dream is like maybe the go-to example of like an anti-drug movie. I think it's of also, like, hey, don't do drugs, kids. It's also, ironically, along with the names you just mentioned, it's an example of an up-and-coming, promising director hitting it out of the ballpark on a sophomore picture. Like yes. Requiem, Requiem landed, and I'm not saying everybody loved it at the time, but it certainly resonated. Yeah. And um, have I shared the anecdote of? giving that to my friends on spring break i think so you have yeah okay never mind i won't say it again then. um the short version is i gave it to my friends on spring break not realizing i gave it to them within a stack of dvd saying hey watch this during the during spring break because you're going to the beach and uh they watched and got mad at me um can i share a quick anecdote that has nothing yeah, to do with Ar- aronofsky about that because uh, people i'm sure ask us like hey what movies should i watch uh, my dad one time was going on a trip and was flying, I don't know, California or something. And he's like, movies I'd like. Well, you go to your, your, your stack of dad movies. So I gave him The Grey. Kind of forgot that the beginning of The Grey is a very violent plane crash. <laughs> yeah. So my dad's sitting on the airplane watching like this horrible thing. And then afterward, he's like, yeah, thanks a lot, Teej. Um, That's terrible. <laughs> I, I stand terrible. by that being a movie that you should watch, though. The Grey is pretty sweet. I don't think I realized that after Wicking for a Dream, he took six years off before he made The Fountain. That's interesting. Um, the Fountain is a sci-fi, like, kind of parallel multiverse, like, uh, taking place over many centuries, starring Hugh Jackman, is what I remember from it. I have not seen since college, but it's like a movie that people watch in college. Yeah, I, I saw it around then, and I was not really a fan of it. Um, there was a podcast I listened to way back whenever... I don't even remember what the name of that was. And they were huge The Fountain fans. So I checked it out. And I remember it has a really good score, really good Clint Mansell score. But otherwise, I was I was uh, not drinking out of The Fountain. I, I'll i be honest. Uh, I don't normally do this because I, I and it wasn't entirely my choosing. Um, I usually like to watch a film all the way through. But I seem to recall watching this or catching part of The Fountain, like starting it in college in somebody's dorm room and then partway through there was a vote to pause it and go grab some food at the local diner and then i never went back to the movie so Mm. um it wasn't really resonating with me otherwise i probably would have would have gone back to it as soon as i could 
that just I guess tells you where I land on that movie, but I probably got about forty five minutes into it. Now that we mention it, I think I watched it in my dorm room during like the early, early days of Netflix streaming. Mm-hmm. So as they were still transitioning from DVDs into streaming, and I think as I recall, uh it was very blurry because they were still <laughs> kind of working out the kinks of how to deliver <laughs> high definition movies. Uh, over broadband so uh maybe i should rewatch that at some point because i probably watched like a blurry version of hugh jackman traveling through time and space in an epic romance with rachel vice uh right? if that uh, she's with rachel vice who i believe aronofsky was married to for like a decade yes, that's, yep this um, would have been and, that and then she then she ended up with james bond she upgraded to daniel craig that's correct uh with all respect to aronofsky <laughs> Um, and then he makes the one-two punch of the wrestler in Black Swan, which we'll come back to. And then, to your point, Ken, the post-Black Swan era is Noah in 2014, the Noah's Ark epic Oof. adaptation with Russell Crowe, which I never bothered to see, honestly. It's the only one of the movies I haven't seen. He made Mother in 2017, which starred Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem and confused the shit out of the elderly audience I saw it with at 4 p.m. on a Friday afternoon in West Los Angeles. <laughs> but I found it to be a very, very good movie. But it also has famously got an F cinema score. So um, a lot of audiences actively hated it. I thought it was actually pretty good, though. TJ, did you see Mother? Yeah. Point? Uh, I actually, I didn't mind Noah either. Um, I was like, it feels like a misfire, but it's weird. And it's weird in ways that, like, big budget Russell Crowe biblical epics don't really go weird, like talking rock <laughs> people and stuff. Um, and so I, I at least appreciated it if I didn't altogether like it. Um, I saw Mother. I was really looking forward to Mother. And I saw it on the opening weekend and um, I, I really liked it. And I've been waiting to go back to it. But it, it is also an intense and disturbing experience. Um, very claustrophobic. If I recall, like 90% oh, yeah. of it is pretty much J-Law's face. Yep. Um, yep. And then there's some stuff in the second half that happens with Kristen Wiig and guns and babies. And uh, it's... There's some pretty upsetting stuff in the second <laughs> half. There is. Um, I, yeah. would, I would like to go back to it, though. Um, I saw it with a friend of mine, and it remains like one of his favorite movies. That's weird for Mother to be one of your favorite movies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, this, this friend of mine, though, is uh, Ted Bundy. Um, and... um i liked it a lot too um but i also have not seen it since theaters but i remember um thinking it was very good it's extremely allegorical and yeah. if you are not hip if you're not hip to the allegory you're going to be both confused and angry again much like the audience i saw it with who were both confused and angry the most i've ever heard people in a theater with me yelling at the screen Really? Was like 70-year-old women yelling at mother. <laughs> Swear to God. Uh, Ken. Turn it mother? off! Turn I, it off! I, I have. So both of these films we're talking about, I, qual- I, I actually qualify. I love the word that TJ used, misfire. Because mm-hmm. for me, this is that's the reaction I had to both of these. Um, I thought that they were overly ambitious. And I just, I personally don't feel Aronofsky really hit his target on either one of them. I will admit to seeing Noah... I literally watched it. It came on television like 11 o'clock at night or 1130. And I stayed up really late to watch it all the way through. And my immediate reaction was I probably just lost sleep. I'm definitely not getting back that I would have been better off uh, uh, getting because the movie just didn't land for me. It's just bloat, overly bloated. Um, 
beautiful, beautiful setting. It looks, it looks gorgeous. I remember that much. Um, I think he filmed it in like Iceland or something. It's gorgeous, but um, yeah, the performances, the the I don't know, the story just kind of meanders for me. Doesn't really find a finish. Kind of like my description right now of my experience with the movie. And then you look at Mother. Um, I quite appreciated the allegory, uh, the choice to use allegory um, as kind of a blueprint for the movie. That said, it just kind of went off the rails for me in like the second half, third act kind of, and it lost me. It kind of lost my interest and I felt like he was just trying to be outrageous for outrageous sake. Um, he certainly, through his whole career, has had, has had a thread of provocateur. Um, which I'm okay with for films, for example, like Requiem and Black Swan, where I guess they just ring for it. They just, they hook me a little more. And I think he, um, I think he finds his footing in those movies a bit better than he did in Mother is all. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the timing of, I mean, the, the fact that the world is perhaps more political. And so the choices he makes in Mother seems like he's just actively trying to rile up people more so than trying to comment on anything. Like Requiem, for example, I think does a fantastic job commenting on its subject matter as opposed to Mother, which, as to, to Josh's point, seems at least partially to have been motivated by trying to rile up those 70 year old white conservative you know suburban women who's who's trying to rile up mothers (laughs) (laughs) i mean is it riling them up is is, no seriously is is it riling them up with its like allegorical political message which is a a climate allegory in addition to being a biblical allegory it's about like how we ruined eden and how we're ruining the earth right and yeah. So is like is that how it's going to rile them up or is it riling up by being like showing them upsetting imagery? Like what are you talking about? I think it's both. I think I think you think about the reaction that you may have I, I that I recall having with audiences in Black Swan. Any of those people show up for Mother? Now admittedly after Black Swan, I don't know how many more of them are showing up for Mother, but those who are the imagery is stark. It's it's definitely in your face. And it just feels like it's it's focus on environmentalism, which as you've talked as we've discussed, he's he's quite the vocal environmentalist. And for mother, it just I guess the time period again. What was that? 2017, 2018? Again, politics is kind of all up in all up in in everybody's business more so at that time period than it was certainly. For when Requiem came out, um, Black Swan's not really as, as political. It's just just psychological thriller, which we'll discuss. But I just feel like Mother is having Mother is so much more. Um, I guess provocative is the the only word I can think of. I mean, it's it's intentionally he's intentionally trying to stir up people's emotions, and it you can't separate it from the political discourse at the time. Ken is a lawyer for the oil industry, so he doesn't like Mother. That's not why. It's not that I'm not. It's not that I'm not buying into what his argument is. It just I just feel like hitting everybody over the head with it um, isn't necessarily the most isn't necessarily the most uh, elegant way of going about making your. So argument. his last move, his last movie following up Mother five years later was The Whale. Yeah. Was he trying to rile and beat up with The Whale, TJ? I, I actually, I kind of think yeah. Um, if I can jump back real quickly, and actually the whale the whale participates in this a bit. Um, the big issue I have, 
a big issue I have. The with... big issue? Yeah. <laughs> the big issue is Brendan Fraser. He's, he's big. Um, he's the whale. With, with Black Swan and Mother is he finds an allegory, and that's just it. Like, yeah. there's not a whole lot else to this. There's, like, A equals X or whatever the allegory is, and then that's the movie. Um, and that's that's at work somewhat in, in The Whale as well. Um, that's a thing Paul Schrader does, too, though. That's Paul Schrader's thing. I think Paul Schrader's better work, though, is transcendent, and it's it plays a lot on um, space and dislocation and disillusionment i think i think aronofsky is kind of basically literary in his use of allegory sure but that's just something about that the whale um yeah i think it was a kind of an attempt to rile people up i remember uh, not as not as much and it kind of didn't work but i do remember that uh it took a long time for there to be anything released about that movie trailer wise or image wise other than they did not up they uh, did not want to. Sh- they had one still of Fat Brennan Fraser. They released like six months in advance, and they did not show him in the trailer at all. Probably because they did not want people like memeing Fat Brennan Fraser before the movie came out, or or starting up a thing about the film being fat phobic, or avoiding that discourse. Yeah, yeah. or at least punting on that discourse best they could. Mm-hmm. Which I didn't really hear much about it, by the way. Even after the movie came out, I did, I did not hear a ton of discourse on like that. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, partially yeah. because it wasn't as well received. Like there, there, there wasn't as one much... best actor. Yeah, one. Yeah, but it one best actor. But it's like it's. Let's be honest. It's one of those movies that audiences and critics all kind of agreed wasn't a very good movie. But it won the performance won over enough people, and the conversation around Brendan Fraser won over the Academy voters. So it felt kind of like this is a great story, a great moment. You know, come back kind of for for this this journeyman actor that's been around for 30 years and he's doing something something different and and really challenging himself here so everyone praised brendan fraser but it's a performance that won a bunch of awards living in a movie that didn't really win over a lot of uh, a lot of love a lot of respect i don't think i'll be revisiting the whale anytime soon and i honestly like i I can like think back the last decade 15 years be like okay picture of the year and then name who won best actor 2022 might be hard for me to like recall <laughs> forward i just think don't think that's gonna stick in my stick in my memory very much but uh i guess to that point brendan fraser won best lead actor for an aronofsky movie ellen bernstein was nominated for best lead actress for an aronofsky movie in Requiem for a dream it should have won uh mickey rourke was nominated for best actor in an aronofsky movie in the wrestler natalie portman nominated for best actress and won for black swan so i guess that is like a a common occurrence is the lead actor uh, is often praised, if not awarded statues working in Aronofsky movies. So let's talk about two that I just mentioned, the wrestler and black Swan. So he made the wrestler in 2008 black Swan in 2010. And apparently like early in his career, he had a script. I don't know if he wrote it or if he found it, but it was about a, it was a romance between a ballerina and a wrestler. And he liked the duality between those two of like high art and low art in like a physical physical performance aspect. Um, and he decided that was too much for one movie and split it into two movies, basically. So The Wrestler, again, came out in 2008 with Mickey Rourke and Marissa Tomei and this. And both of them are... I mean, I just kind of said the similarities between the two. It's They're both about like one person in a physical performance art form 
with different, you know, cultural <laughs> values, you know, whether it be high art or low art, etc. Um, and both include like very powerful lead performances, both Oscar nominated lead performances. Um, TJ, what do you think of the wrestler? Starring Mickey work. I love the wrestler. The wrestler is in my top. I absolutely love the wrestler too. Yes, um, I think me too. I think the wrestler is. I don't like to speak in superlatives because I think they're lazy. But one of the perfect pairings of part and player that I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, yeah of course. And that movie is just so particular and granular and. You know, you mentioned the move the movies that people won Oscars for versus who they were nominated. I, I kind of wish they would have flipped. Uh, Mickey Rourke yeah, and Ellen same. Burstyn should have won, and I could take or leave the whale and the swan. Um, mm. But I love the wrestler, and interestingly, the end of the wrestler and the end of Black Swan kind of mirror one another in interesting oh, yeah, ways. Definitely. Uh, yes, also, yes, the yes, cinematography yes. being uh, kind of grainy, almost almost quote unquote you know documentary like um bouncing behind a lot of, the subject's head yeah a lot of yeah a lot of like following shots where you're behind the protagonist's mm-hmm. head as they walk through whatever yeah yeah um i love the wrestler uh as i recall mickey rourke won the golden globe for best actor he beat sean penn and then at the oscars he lost to sean penn for best actor for milk which is a uh loss that i'm still 15 years later kind of upset about i, I definitely think mickey rourke should have won the oscar there uh, Ken, wrestler, thoughts? Oh, I think I, I don't have too much to add over TJ. We talked, I, I seem to recall talking about the wrestler when it came out back in the day. Um, yeah. With, with TJ and maybe Josh, you and I certainly talked about it since. Um, but I remember really, really loving Mickey Rourke in that role. And it was, it, it was an incredibly exciting performance from an actor. Um and how disappointing it was that not enough people were seeing the movie or talking about it. Yeah. And it just felt like a total missed opportunity because this great performance that you know people are going to dig up and find later on. And like, oh, wow, that was that was spectacular. What has Mickey Rourke been up to? And most people in retrospect, it's like, oh, yeah, he's the villain in the second Iron Man movie, right? <laughs> hey, um, man, you got that bag for him. <laughs> It's like, oh God, come on! You guys should have should have been there for him uh, with the wrestler, because yeah. yeah, that's it's a high water mark and one of the better, one of the better, I think, uh, better character uh, studies of that decade, as far as um, a story being driven so brilliantly by the performance and by the what the actor is bringing to the table. Yeah, that movie doesn't work but for Mickey Rourke being the exact right person for the job. And to your point, I, I kind of, I think we're both, or not, maybe we're not saying this, but I wish that what Black, the response Black Swan had, I wish the wrestler had. As in, the lead won the Oscar, it made a bunch of money, and it became ubiquitous. Why aren't we seeing Rain to the Ram Halloween costumes? Where's that? Just get a blonde platinum wig, a green fuzzy vest, and some tight gold pants, and there. Ram Jam. And that, Sounds like um, we know what Josh is going to be next year. <laughs> not to not to sound like Martin Scorsese, but for all the Marvel fans, if you love if you you love uh, Mickey Rourke in, in Iron Man two, and you love Marissa Tomei in the Spider Man movies, you should watch them both in the Wrestler if you haven't already seen it because they're both great in it. Uh, the Wrestler's really good. Love the Wrestler. 
Uh, but on to Black Swan, the which is a movie we have talked alarmingly little about 40 minutes into this podcast or 35 minutes into this podcast. Uh, Black Swan, um, the development of which started when Aronofsky hired a team of screenwriters to rework a script called The Understudy, which I don't know if was his or if just one he found, but it was about uh, some off-Broadway actors who are apparently haunted by doubles. And I think he also had – who's the – who wrote the double? Uh, Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky, yes. He also cites that as an inspiration. I think he was like – I think I think I saw an interview where he was like rereading that and then also happened to go to the ballet and saw Swan Lake and didn't realize that the white swan and the black swan were played by the same, uh, same dancer. Mm-hmm. So like seeing that conceit and also reading the double uh, kind of brought this idea to a head. Um, and as I said, he'd had a script earlier about a wrestler and ballerina that he eventually split into two. Um, he apparently began talking to Natalie Portman about this like 10 years in advance, like 2000 or something, when she was still doing Star Wars movies. And uh, when she eventually agreed to do the movie, she and Mila Kunis both uh, uh, reportedly worked out five hours a day for six months to get in shape and, and then also learned choreography on top of that. As I recall, I didn't like dig this back up for this episode but as i recall most of her dancing in the is a body double that they like put her face on is that right or am i misremembering do you, do you remember i have no idea okay i know that she did i know that i think i think it's a dispute how much dancing she did and i don't mean to dismerge her because i know that she uh did a lot of dancing but i'm not sure um to the extent of it. So maybe I shouldn't say anything at all. I don't know. Maybe I'll just cut, maybe I'll cut that out. I don't know. <laughs> now that Portman's going to get litigious and come after us for me saying that she, did, she didn't do dancing in this movie. Well, she did. I know she did. Uh, I just don't know how much. Um, TJ, if your friend had never seen the movie Black Swan and they came up to you and said, hey, what's Black Swan about? What would you tell them? I would say Black Swan is about a ballerina dancer played by Natalie Portman who has a mother that is a helicopter mother who's living vicariously through her, played by Mickey Rourke. I mean, Barbara Hershey, <laughs> looking a lot like Mickey Rourke in this film. Yeah, yeah uh, sure. And as she presses on to get the role of both the black and the white swan, it is made very clear to her multiple times that she's got that white swan energy, but her black swan just ain't making it. So she begins to lose her shit. That's what All I right. would say. <laughs> That's a Ken, in a sentence, what would you say Black Swan's about? Uh and don't repeat what TJ said. Yeah, I'm trying to think in a sentence. Uh well, it's a psychological thriller about a ballerina striving for perfection and ambition, paranoia, unleashing the hidden dark side, a sexual awakening. How about those things? Yes? Well, yeah, it has all of those, but that's not what it's about, mm-hmm. right? That, that's just that's elements in the film. It, it, I think it's about it's about a ballerina trying desperately to be so good at a singular performance, trying to be the the absolute best peak version of herself, and get loses herself in the process. It's an age old story about about what perfection in artistry can do. Okay, I agree. Obviously, you guys are right, but I al- you also said that like the 
ambition, paranoia, sexual awakening thing. That's not what the movie's about. Well, I kind of disagree to an extent. Well, because saying, like the, it's not the that's not the story. That's not the summary I would use. It's all that's all absolutely is, correct. It's all part of the movie. This is this is more of an, a sexual awakening movie than I remembered it being when I saw it in college. Like rewatching this past week, I'm like, wow, that's actually like really what this is. Because at the start of the movie, she uh, I, I guess I'd had forgotten how infantilized she is. Mm, yeah. And maybe it's because bedroom, when I first saw this. Goodness. Okay. Yeah. Her bedroom that she sleeps in has like a bunch of stuffed animals and she is constantly dressed in like pink or like light grays and every other dancer in the company is dressed in black or dark grays. And the way that her mom talks to her and the way that she talks to her mom, um, the very first scene is breakfast when her mom calls her sweet girl. And calls her sweet girl a lot. And there's actually a moment in that first scene where, like, uh, they have breakfast together and then Nina goes off to the studio. But, like, that scene ends with her mom hugging her. And, like, her mom kind of, like, gets a dark look on her face, like, while she's hugging her. And then, like, it the, it cuts to Nina on the train from that shot. But, like, the, the shot it cuts to is, like, Nina looking in her reflection in the train window. And, like... Later in the movie, that reflection will be like, you know, quote unquote, dark Nina. But like the way the the way the cut happens is like, again, mom and Nina hug. Mom kind of scowls over Nina's shoulder. And then it cuts to dark Nina, almost as if mom is scowling at dark Nina, even though, you know, time and space has passed over the cut. I just thought that was really interesting. Um, And then obviously, like Vincent Cassell, the was he the director? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he like is constantly telling Nina to seduce him and to be more sexual, and then Nina has a very literal sexual awakening with Mila Kunis, and like tells her mom she's moving out and masturbates with her mom in the room by accident. Woo! So like, <laughs> there's I don't know. I feel like there there was more to that aspect. Uh, she literally dies by penetrating herself. Spoiler alert for the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was more, there was more to that aspect of the story than I remembered it being. So, like, this really felt strongly like a sexual awakening movie to me this the, time around. The, Discuss. The thing I took more away from it, I agree with you, but the thing that I took more away than I did the first time, and maybe this is just because I now teach young people, is this is also about the way um, parents f*** their kids up badly yeah. and irreversibly. And... Yeah. Uh, don't let them be their own people and are constantly putting a ton of pressure on them, living vicariously through them. Um, it, you know, there was a show called Dance Moms, right? That was all about. Uh, and, and I've seen like, I don't remember when we were when we were in high school, they used the theater a lot of the time for like muni auditions and stuff. And hmm. some of these moms with their little girls going on to like, it, it's it's it, it was abuse. It was abuse. Um yeah. And that was something that really stuck out to me this time. Well, yeah, we we haven't really discussed it, but the character of Erica, the mother, she has a background in dance. And it's clear that she apparently got pregnant young. And so she... She was 28, as Nina will point yes, out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. She was washed. Well, yeah. Mo- Mom likes to say her pregnancy ended her career, but Nina will, will point out your career wasn't really going anywhere because you were 28 and you were never past the ensemble or whatever correct yeah she wasn't she wasn't uh she wasn't a prima ballerina or anything and she wasn't she was never lead um and yeah 28 you're already 
you're already probably if you're not already top billing you're not probably getting there um but to her and her it's important to note that in erica's mindset um she gave up a career to raise her daughter and now she's kind of forcing it all on nina nina's got to be the she's got to achieve everything erica wasn't able to she believes because of nina's existence and not only that but there's also like um i don't know if someone's i think tj you just said emotional abuse but there are hints of i guess familiar with the concept of like uh eggshell parents where you kind of have to like children learn to yes if you have an emotionally unstable parent children kind of like innately learn to walk on eggshells around them mm-hmm. and it kind of like can potentially fuck them up emotionally later in life and the scene with the cake yeah where uh mom gets her a quick cake because she got the swan queen the yeah swan mm-hmm. queen part and uh nina doesn't want to have a big piece because she <laughs> is on a strict diet and mom freaks out because nina like doesn't seem grateful about the cake well, and, like threatens to throw the cake away and, and then nina has to back up and be like no no no, no i love it and it's not just freaks out it's that that uh, uh, manipulation of pass- passive aggression where she's like yes. okay well i guess i'll just throw it all away then yes she's which fearsome. to me is the scariest yes. part of the movie because i'm like that cake looks delicious. Somebody <laughs> grab that cake. <laughs> I would eat the f- out of that. I don't know about you two. I find her the mo- to be easily the most intimidating character throughout the film. As far as nah. I, yeah, I find oh, her just slapper, just slapper. I, I find her this. I find her the scariest just because I'm not ever positive. At least the first time you watch it, she feel it feels like Erica is capable of some really fucked up stuff. I'm sorry, <laughs> she's unhinged. The she's got that look in her eye where she's like, <laughs> "Ever, ever trust anyone else to cut your fingernails with a pair of scissors?" Okay, that's what a nail file is for. What the hell is going on here? Okay, where Erica is uh, taking grabbing her fingers and having to trim them like a dog. Put a pin in the body horror elements because I need to talk about the body horror elements, but we can do that in a minute. What is Erica painting? Is she painting Nina? Horrifying, yeah. horrifying yes. images. Yeah, um, that's that's the other big red flag. If I'm Nina and I'm living with my mom in a small apartment and she's constantly painting, like, basically, like, over and over a portrait of me screaming in really abstract ways. Like, but, I mean, if you think about I'm that, too, that, place, I think. that's like, look how she is constantly trying. The, the, the live Nina is not enough, so I'm going to constantly try to artistically render this version of Nina that I want. Yeah, yeah, that's that's well said, and I think that's a good summation of their relationship. Uh, I do have to say, though, just before we get too far away from it, the scene where Vincent Castle tells her to masturbate at, gets her homework. Um, I remember that, so what happens is uh, Nina wakes up and um, does her homework, so to speak. She starts, and it's, she starts it's, her homework. Yes. It's, it's very erotic, and uh, the scene builds very effectively, builds to a climax, for lack of a better term. And then right before said climax, it cuts to mom sleeping in the chair in Nina's bedroom. Nina didn't realize that she was not alone in the room. And I remember in theaters, like, that being kind of like, not not a jump scare, but like. <laughs> oh, it's a, a jump scare. It's a jump scare. The musical. <laughs> so the music cues you. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was like, it played like an intense moment the first time I saw it. Now I think that's actually like a comedy scene. I think that's actually a laugh line. What do you think, TJ? Yeah, it, I think it's both. It's. Yeah, I this think it's is because this is kind of a horror movie, and that is for the for the rest of it. You know, we talked about the body horror. There is a, there are a lot of jump scares of kind of frightening images throughout, but that is a psychological horror that I think a lot of people um, ha- have a sort of nightmare scenario of, right? 
Um, so yes, the answer is both. Just like, the way that she, the way the mom is sleeping in the chair is kind of funny to me. Like she's kind of like off to the side with her mouth like wide hanging open. Like again, if if they wanted to make it, if they wanted to fully commit to this being like a scary cut to, they would have positioned her differently. I think it's actually like a scary but also very funny cut too. They should have made her one of those people that sleeps with their eyes open, so it cuts to her and she's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's just staring at her. Like, <laughs> uh, Ken, is this movie scary? It is at times, yeah. I think, and he, he on purpose too. There are some, there's some, yeah, yeah, yeah. there are some moments that he actively builds towards something, and then it, there isn't necessarily anything that actually happens. I'm thinking about a, yeah. a scene at the after the party with Winona Ryder um, as Beth, in particular. Aronofsky brilliantly stages the scene, and they move the camera just so. Um, this is um, uh, uh, Libetique, Matthew right? Libetique. Matthew Libetique. Mm-hmm. Um, they they stage the, they stage the scene and the camera so that uh, immediately uh, behind Nina at one point is the 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 sculpture or statue right um, wings this large wings sculpture or statue and she decides to turn and look at it and she's closely observing the statue as she approaches it this armless winged figure. Um, with kind of a Michael Myers face, by the way, it's not a really, a, it's a horrifying looking sculpture. A William Shatner face? Yeah, exactly. And just as she begins to turn away, the camera pans very suddenly to Beth, suddenly standing right behind her. Right. And yes. the, the camera's slow pan and cut of her. Um, and the, the tight close up. Yes. The, the fact that the frame is so tight, the frame is limited. And so that it's surprising when things like enter the frame well, you're expect- because you're so like concentrating on one thing. And you're well, the, the, the tension building in that moment is that something is about to happen. And yes. based on what we've seen so far, you don't know. It, the assumption is it's going to have something to do with the, the sculpture itself. And yet it isn't. Right. It's just Winona Ryder, which for a lot of people might be just as scary. But they do this. They do this exact same trick when she goes to see Winona Ryder in the hospital. Yeah. And then the nurse surprises her behind her. It's the exact same trick where it's like close on her. And then because it's a close-up and, like, the frame, the frame is limiting what you can see. And so, like, you're worried about what's outside the frame, what's approaching around Nina, and then she gets snuck up on again. Which is a bit kind of cheap, like, to go to that well over it again. Is. But is, yeah. to defend it, I think it creates within the viewer what Nina's experiencing, which is, like, I, I am so on edge and anxious that yes, actually exactly. the, the, the smallest yep. little thing, even if you keep doing it, like you're gonna you're gonna scare her each time and i think that that cumulative effect um works subjectively on the audience agreed yes i I do recall Uh, both of those scenes getting rather vocal reactions from the audience in the theater i was in when i first saw this those were two jump scares that actually got a reaction so it worked in the sense that if aronofsky was looking for a reaction like that it it he delivered so there are a couple jump scares like that that are you know, not really jump scares, just something something entering the frame surprisingly with a small music cue. Um, then there's also like kind of built up moments of dread where like a reflection in the mirror does something that the person who's being reflected isn't doing, kind of implying like an, an evil double situation. Those are pretty intense, but like to some somebody already said it, it kind of like builds but doesn't actually pay off or doesn't actually the scare doesn't actually come. 
just like thinks makes things something well, about to come. The scare is uh, the scare is there. The tension's being built, and it's it's unnerving and creepy. Like when she's alone in the dance studio at night, and we do get yeah. the we do get and her reflection turns exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's startling, but we don't get the your to your point. Yeah, we don't get the ultimate payoff in the scene. And same with like she's walking on the street at night and she's like crossing paths with someone coming towards her. And then she like the person looks like herself mm-hmm. and then like it builds to a scary climax. But then like she passed the person. It's not actually her. And it, it's kind of like diffused like a non a non climax. So like I, I kind of put all those into the same category. So there's, there's minor jump scares, minor dread building that doesn't actually come off you know in the end but there's also moments of body horror with uh her fingernails and her toenails i i realized watching this i don't like fingernail horror (laughs) when she's like peeling the skin of her finger back in the sink like i have to look away Uh like i really really don't like that and that uh i guess increased my sweaty palms watching this uh the first time and subsequent times and then uh when she like transforms into the bird in like a nightmare horror sequence, I fucking hated that the first time I saw it, and like was like dreading that scene on rewatch where like her legs bend backwards. Um, it, now, now that I know that's coming, I don't find that scene. That's actually kind of again a little comical, honestly. Maybe not comical, but like a little ridiculous and over the top. But um, the first time I saw it, it really, really freaked me out. It's moments like that that I have kind of a problem with the movie in the sense that it it so literalizes. The allegory, yeah. it so literalizes the psychological horror of it that I, I, I think it, there are two other directions it could have gone that might have been more interesting. And one is this movie needs more of a sense of humor. Like this could have been way campier, um, especially for a movie that's about being on the stage. Um, I think there's a there's a good kind of campy version of this movie that didn't quite make it. Or the other one is what if you push the literalization so far that... What if she like did turn into a bird? You, you know, um, like the, I, like the end of Birdman. Uh, yeah, uh, there you go. Um, where it's because I, I, I feel like once you once you get like I said earlier that the the key to understand the allegory, then all of this is just kind of like it's a little silly. Um, yeah, but so I guess speaking of which, speaking of what we're talking about, the ending. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if we want to talk about this now, but the the ending kind of has some reversals where like she stabs Mila Kunis but then actually doesn't stab Mila Kunis but actually stabs herself and blah 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 blah. I I, I feel like that's kind of TJ I think you kind of used the word cheap earlier for some of the scares it it kind of like undercuts itself by like it's kind of too much of like nothing is real so like the reversals kind of feel like a little uh, you lose some believability yeah well what I'm trying to say is like you're, you're kind of just, like, showing us a bunch of stuff and getting us to have a visceral reaction to it and, like, a <gasps> reaction to it. But then, like, none of it actually is real. So, like, I feel it's kind of, like, pulling the rug out from the under, under the audience in a kind of a cheap way, I guess. And, and there's no one there really watching the damage that she's going through. So, yeah. a movie I thought about a lot while I was watching rewatching this that I think is far superior is The Fly. I was just about to mention the fly in reaction to your suggestion that if you actually had made it the film more literal in her transformation. Well, in making it more literal, it invites um, not allegory, but symbol because it becomes a lot more open ended. So there's a lot of things you can read into the fly. But the thing with the fly that is so horrifying in a way that isn't just, oh, gross, he pulled his his teeth out or whatever. Right. Which is disgusting. 
but it's Gina Davis being there. Right. And she loves yeah. him and she sees this happening and there's nothing that she can do. And there is no character in Black Swan to really watch the deterioration of Nina. It should normally be Ooh, the, it's mom. the mom. No, it's uh, mom. right. It should normally be the mom, but there's no moment where she's like, oh my gosh, I kind of did this to you and it's gone too far. We're never on, her, we're never on the mom's side. No. Like we're, we're Gina Davis is the audience POV character. Right. Fly, well, and we're, the mom is definitely not. We're, we're anything, even though the mom is right at the end of the movie that like Nina's taking this too far and needs to like need some help. At this point, the mom has blown any good grace we could possibly yeah. give her. So, like, we we disagree with her, even though she's right. Well, and it's like, well, bitch, this is all kind of your fault. Like, we need we need yes. that moment where it's like, look at what you've created too, and otherwise, it just kind of rings false to me. But... Do you think we get that moment in the final seconds of the movie where Nina's up on stage and like looks at the audience and locks eyes with her mom before falling to the mat- mattress? Is that happening in that moment? Do you think? If, the, what have I created? If it is, I didn't get it there, and I would need to see it again. I was going to say I didn't yeah, get that from. Yeah. I was looking for it actually in Barbara Hershey's face this time. Um, I, I guess you could you could kind of pull that from Hershey's performance. That, but I, I, I'm not sure that I felt quite exactly what you're saying. I I got a sense that Hershey is trying to balance a certain amount of pride in her daughter's performance with the reality that she's lost her given their last mm-hmm. encounter or react and interaction with one another, like that, that relationship is irrevocably altered. Um, even if they can find their way to being mother daughter in the future, Hershey is there aware of the fact that this is, she's not getting her sweet girl back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I see that a little bit in her face, but I'm not sure I, I recognize any kind of like guilt perhaps, or any kind of recognition that this is on me which means we're lacking in kind of the catharsis we kind of maybe hope for in relation to Erica. And can I just be nitpicky since we're on the ending? We're supposed to believe she stabs herself in the tummy, dances this whole thing pretty well. Pretty well. (laughs) Yeah. And it doesn't bleed until she dive bombs. Yeah. Like, again, fine. You want to do the stabby thing? That's okay. Give me a shot where everybody in the audience is like, oh, shit, she's bleeding. Correct. Um, but it's like the wound is going to be like, let her finish. Let her finish. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. She doesn't – in the shot, it doesn't even begin to really start bleeding and take over the costume until after she's landed on the yeah. Yeah. the mattress. And I guess within, within the – well, again, I kind of made the point that, like, there's no, like, internal logic to the, that last, like, stabby, stabby part. But, like, I think within the logic of the movie, she still has the glass piece in her when she dances the black swan part, then pulls it out before she dances the final white swan part. So I don't know what's holding her blood in. Yeah, um, but nobody else reacts. I mean, she'd be bleeding profusely yeah. at that point okay, in a white yeah, costume on stage. Anyway, <laughs> um – before we get away from like the horror parts, uh, Winona Ryder stabbing her face is pretty horrific to me, and uh, yeah. I don't like that scene. Yeah. But uh, that's like that, and the bathtub jump scare are like the two like real like. There's again minor jump scares that you know just someone walking to frame, but like the bathtub scene and Winona Ryder stabbing her face are like the two like jump scares. I'll be honest, this last time I watched it, I forgot about the the bathtub scene yeah man. i forgot about that i did not forget sc- about it <laughs> i forgot about that jump scare when it, when it arrived well and you know shout out to casting winona writer because now maybe it's like oh she she had stranger things this is a 2010 where yeah. people kind of still weren't touching her from her yeah 
uh, shoplifting. Yeah. And let me yeah. say, she comes in and steals the show. Am I right? She does. Hey. <laughs> She is she is pretty she's very good (laughs) as Beth the And 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 yeah, again now after after seeing Stranger Things, it seems like common sense to be like cast her as person that's really emotionally unstable and on the verge here. But this is this is a good time long time before that. So Yeah, well then it's also it's interesting because watching this, it kind of reminds you, oh yeah, she this is the woman who was Francis Ford Coppola's first choice to play Mary in Godfather Part Three. Like there's a there she does have she does have some potential and some you can see some actual talent because she's really good in Black Swan and clearly people have seen that throughout her career but she's got that gap really where mm. after the 90s she's not in as much stuff until well, we get to Black Swan and given the choice between Winona Ryder and that that stunning thespian that is Sofia Coppola how would you pass on Sofia Coppola. Little nepotes. Well, anyway, uh, just a yeah. few other things I want to mention. Well, I was going to say, writer wasn't available, is my understanding. And I don't know why he chose to. <laughs> everyone criticized him. So that's Little what, fault, that's what always choice. happens. Let's not recast. Let's just go, uh, who's in the house that can do it? <laughs> Sorry. A few other things I want to mention. Um, I like the scene where Nina calls her mom after she learns that she got the swan queen mm. role mm-hmm. she's in like a bathroom stall and like she really goes through it in that phone call and like the the facial expressions she makes are like extremely memorable and uh i think it's a good scene what do you think Ken? she I, I also appreciate the fact that um in that scene there's an innocence a certain level of innocence and childlike child yeah, quality like, to Mommy, her voice i got it yeah yeah it's yeah. a it's it's a throwback natalie portman like from it's not, it's even less mature, I feel like, than her character in Star Wars, on purpose though. This is this is this is clearly somebody who has not yet um, experienced darker elements of or Queen life. of the Galaxy. Um. <laughs> and yet, I I agree that she's you know that's still in like the early infantilized Nina portion of the movie. Um, but then what happens seconds later, TJ? Um, is that when she goes and takes drugs with Mila Kunis? No. Uh, <laughs> but then seconds later, she walks out of the bathroom stall and someone has written whore. Oh, yes. On the mirror. Yeah. So it was Sean the Connery. <laughs> the dichotomy in this sexual awakening story, which I will again say this is a movie about sexual awakening, is the infantilized little girl calling mommy to say that she did a good job and then comes out and whore. The virgin and the whore. And the, the virgin and the whore. Correct. Uh, other things, um, TJ, you mentioned that this is like just a very, very they like find the metaphor. Then the movie isn't much beyond that. So here's a, here's a couple like what I'll call hooray for metaphors moments. Uh, when we first be, see Vincent Castle and he enters the movie and gives them a speech about casting the black swan and the white swan, when he says he needs someone who can play both the white and the black, it is a shot of him in a mirror. It is like two mirrors. So you can see two Vincent Castles as he says. The white swan and the black one. So, mm. hooray for metaphors. <laughs> There's two people in the two reflections <laughs> in the mirror. Um, and then later, um, you just mentioned Nina going out with Lily with Mila Kunis out for drinks. Um, I believe at the start of that night, she's wearing her usual light pink, light gray outfit that she wears the entire night. But Mila Kunis gives her a black shirt to wear mm. at the club. So she is like. 
Uh, she's kind of being a bad girl. She's being a black swan for a night. She's putting on like a bad girl costume, a black swan costume. So again, uh, hooray for metaphors. <laughs> um, what else? Oh, also that night with Mila Kunis. Mila Kunis uh, I uh, we we talked about how like the movie shot in tight close-ups. The scene where they're on the dance floor and they're like rolling on Molly. Uh, I think is really effective with the way like the lights come up and down and like it's super disorienting. It's super loud. Again, it's tight close-ups. I think if you watch it eagle-eyed, you see like dark Nina in the background of certain scenes. Ooh. I think there's like body doubles in that sequence, but I just think that sequence is really good. I Comments? I also particularly love the fact that the two guys they pick up are named Tom and Jerry. Yes. Two. Yeah. Two. <laughs> let's take a bit of. Is innocent. it one of them, Sebastian Stan? Yes. Sebastian yes. Stan plays. I, yeah. Uh, I can't remember which it's one. Bucky. Exactly. I think he's Jerry. Um, but. Or they're not, it's actually not their real names, if I recall correctly. That's just what Mila Kunis' character decides to name them. And I appreciate yes. that because you're taking another example of, of innocence and you're distorting it. Because these guys, these guys have absolutely, there's, there's no facade whatsoever. They don't even attempt to care at all about the ballet. They are clearly yeah. just after these two women. They care about yeah. getting into exactly. Pants. Yes, and they're not. They're yes. and I just love the fact that from Nina's position, she's been introduced to them as, as uh, Tom and Jerry. It's it's just a little a little th- additional throw in there. Um, how her innocence is being perhaps further destroyed. Can I ask you a Agreed. question? Yes. Um, do you remember? Okay, so it's when she's dancing near the end, and she kind of turns to the camera, and I'm gonna try to describe this and do it at the same time. She turns to the camera, and she's got those possessed red eyes. You know, she's do bad, and she's like ah, like that at the camera, yeah. but it's kind of like a. Um, yeah. I thought of Edvar Munch's The Scream, but I also thought that's some red shoes action there. Yep. There's that's some. Red yes, shoes action exactly with that, the very famous close up in there of her losing her shit during the the uh set. Is there a question there? Oh, uh the question was, that's what I thought. Did you guys similarly pick up uh a a a red shoes illusion, or would it be as my students frequently say, that's a stretch, Mr. Keeley? Oh, I um I definitely see the red shoes in this movie i definitely see some influences how about in that shot though yeah i think that i think that's acceptable i'm not sure if i'm not sure it's that's exactly what came to mind in that moment but now that you're describing it that way i yeah i could see it i could see where there's a that there's a possibility that was in aronofsky's mind at the time i mean the vincent cassell character for example very much comes off like the artistic director in the red shoes it's very similar in his drive at least his the red shoes. Yeah, the red shoes. Except the red shoes. Um, I think there's some influence there. It's not quite. A, it's not quite the red shoes, obviously. But um, there's. I don't think you can get away from. I don't think anybody can make a ballet movie at this point without probably uh, making allusions to the red shoes, unless you're unless you're doing something that's absolutely not at all psychologically driven. So I guess to answer your question, TJ, I was not specifically thinking of the red shoes at that shot. But one thing I one thought I did have during that shot was that, wow, she really does look like a completely different person mm. as the black swan. I don't know if it's the eye makeup or if it's 
she has like a distinctly different energy. Like like her jaw looks like it's a different shape. Mm. I don't know if she's just like clenching her teeth harder, but like her neck looks different, her jaw looks different. It looks like a it looks like a different actress. She's got a bird face. Dancing the black swan. Maybe she's maybe it's the bird face. It's I don't the know. bird face. Um let's see, what else? Oh, I also <laughs> during the aforementioned scene where she stabs Mila Kunis, doesn't actually stab Mila Kunis. Um, that whole sequence has real, um, Nina has real, I'll deal with this later energy for like everything that's happening. Oh, look, my toes fused together. Gross, but it'll have to wait. <laughs> Whoops. I murdered my understudy. Let's just put her in a closet till after the performance. We can just deal with this later. Let's just get this performance. We'll deal with the fused toes. We'll deal with the murdered understudy. We'll figure this out. But let me just, let me just finish this first. I'll deal with this later. Um, yeah. And then she dances. She was perfect, and she dies, which, again, spoilers for The Wrestler, is kind of what happens at the end of The Wrestler as well. And it's a, it's a jump with then a fade to white. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, we haven't talked yet about how, like, absolutely disgusting and unacceptable and abominable Vincent Cassell's character is. I remembered— I love him. He's great. As a person, you 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 like that character? No, the Josh? performance is great. I don't I don't like the character. Uh, no. I mean, it's a it's a great performance. It's a credit to his performance that nearly everything he says or does, I'm like, somebody please kick this man in the junk. Like he is just the worst. <laughs> um, yeah, it, pretty one dimensional, but effective, I think. Yeah. Um, I guess one last thing I'll say about the movie itself. Uh, I mean, we can talk about whatever you guys like, but one last thing I'll say is that. Uh, again, I saw this in theaters. I might have watched it like once around 2011 after theaters, maybe. And then I'm not sure I watched it again in the last like decade. And then I watched it a couple times in preparation for this episode. But like, I was surprised by how much I remembered of it because mm. there are just like distinct moments that like really, really stuck with me. Whether and some of that's like the the body horror stuff that I'd like to forget, but like can't. But like, like I said, I remembered the bathtub jump scare. Um, I had distinct memory of her mom's energy throwing out the cake and Nina trying to like diffuse that as we've already talked about. Like I, that stuck with me for like 15 years um, or 13 years. Um, And like, I remembered most of the movie more than I remember. Like we're talking about the fighter next week. Uh, I popped on the fighter and watched the first like 15 minutes of the fighter recently. I remember nothing about the fighter is what i realized as i was watching the first few minutes of the fighter and i i remember most of the black swan is you know so it's visceral it's like a i mean the body horror element is almost cronenberg-esque at times so it's easy to remember but to your point i also recall the entire evening with lily after the the club when they they it suggested they come back to the house the apartment and if you pay attention having seen the film before i hadn't seen this movie since 2011 at least um i distinctly remember going into the scene though oh yeah M- M- mila kunis isn't actually here everything we're going to see mm-hmm. we're going to find out the next day yeah. didn't actually that happen too. yeah and specifically yes. at home it forces me to it forced me to watch the interaction with erica when they first get into the apartment differently because yes. she's it's almost as if she's not even paying attention to lily well for right. good reason um yeah, and I did so that to your point. Yeah, enough of this films did register, did stay in my mind, uh, except except like I said, except for the bathtub scene that I completely forgot about that one. But um, there were no surprises. There was nothing that really came into this movie when it comes to the plot and some of the major stuff that I couldn't, I didn't remember. I it was there 
sticks with me. Yeah. Um, PJ. I, I think to that, to that point of the visceralness and what the stick to itedness, um, my overall opinion of the movie, which I know we're not there yet, but it's, it's determined kind of by a, an average of my first viewing and my most recent viewing, my most recent viewing, I was like, okay, this is like better than average, but it's kind of overdone. My first viewing, now granted I was 20. And again, there's, when you see a movie, it matters. And I was really into like auteurist cinema. And I was really into that type of thinking where good directing is most directing and, and whatnot. But this movie, I think, falls in that category of um, great first watches. And it's really hard to replicate that. Um, and so I have to give it the credit for kind of the first watch energy that it had. Yeah. I buy that. I was actually going to transition to what we all think, so I'll oh. call that. What what you think of this? Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, if I could add a few more things, it's yeah. uh, what we might now call an attempt at quote-unquote elevated horror. If this gets made now, it's an A24 film. Yeah. Um, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't really think Natalie Portman's that great in this. People kind of lost their mind disagree. over her. And I was like... I think she's great. I disagree. I, there were other people nominated that year also, other women nominated that year, or not nominated that year, that I think should have won over her. Um, we all know you love a net betting, TJ. Get over it. In I, I'm more thinking Leslie Manville from another year, but... It wasn't even nominated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even... Oh. We want to talk about the Oscars of the Oscars. I mean, to TJ's point, she may not be my first choice. I actually quite like Natalie Portman in this performance, and I was okay with her winning at the time. It's tough though because I'm thinking about that year, and we'll talk about some of these other movies. But you've got yeah, Annette Benning. You've got Jennifer Lawrence from Winter's Bone. Granted, it was too early for the Academy to recognize her for with a win. You've got Michelle Williams. I like that movie a lot for yeah. Blue Valentine. Um, and then, yeah, you've got people that weren't even nominated, like Leslie, Leslie Manville, um, who still fit. I mean, if you haven't seen another year, go back and watch it. Unfortunately, we won't be. I've not seen another year. Unfortunately, we won't be watching that for this podcast series, even though we should be. Um, yeah. I'd never heard of Leslie Manville before Phantom Threat. Is that bad? Uh, not necessarily, but you, you should watch another year. She's great as Cyril in Phantom Threat. (laughs) She is. Oscar nominated. Uh, were you done? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Following up, I think TJ's. I I think I don't know how you come down on on her performance, Josh. I like I like the performance quite a bit here. Um, but yeah, in retrospect, between her and and Mickey O'Rourke, maybe this isn't the Aronofsky film I jump to to give an Oscar for performance. Um, Portman's good, but she's not it's, even my favorite. Flash here. She's not my favorite performance even in the movie. Who's your favorite performance in the movie? Um, I think it's it's honestly I really love writer Hershey and Kunis. Oh my god! I, all, knew, I knew you were going to say all slightly. No, no, all writer. slightly better than I like Portman's performance. Writer has one mode, and she's in three scenes and does the same thing in those three scenes. You can't say she gives a better performance than Natalie Portman with a serious face. <laughs> Do it. Try it. Put on a serious face and say it, Ken. Do it. <laughs> Do it. I think it works. I think she's 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 oh delivering, my God. she's delivering a performance that is key to the key to the film, and in the scenes it works. The this is a, this is an example of sometimes when you have too much, like the more time you have, the more opportunity you have to show some cracks. 
Whereas Ryder, mm. she she doesn't have any, she has no cracks. She delivers the performance that is expected of her, I think, precisely, perfectly. Um, Hershey, as I mentioned earlier, is intimidating throughout. She hold, And it holds up. She still scares the shit out of me watching this movie. Because even though I know she's not going to do anything that terrible, um, she, her character is just frightening. And Mila Kunis has a it great reminds- deal... A great it reminds deal of Ken of, of his days when he was a ballerina and his mom was abusive to him. Yes, back in the 1890s when I was <laughs> studying in uh, in Covent Garden in, in London. That's exactly right. He had a little lederhosen on and he'd do the nutcracker. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, can we, real quick before we run away with this, we haven't really discussed Mila Kunis's performance. She's got quite a bit of, she's having to do quite a bit in this movie because she's, both the comic relief and serving as a slight antagonist at times. And she pulls and it And also like the, she's also kind of like the uh, Sherpa on the sexual awakening front. Yes, the right. sexy love interest. Yep. Yeah, she's got to play yeah. the femme fatale yeah. in addition to. I also think she's great in this and she should have been nominated. And I don't believe she was. She was not. She sh- And I agree. I think yeah. her performance is fantastic in this performance, in this movie. Um, yeah. I actually... And I do like it a little better than Portman's, even though uh, Portman does an awful lot to carry this movie. I think it the the Mila Kunis performance kind of like makes me curious as to why she hasn't done anything like this since. She's not done anything remotely like this since this movie. What has she done since why. this movie? A lot of comedies, okay. and that's kind of it. Hmm. Well, she's um, she's an actress that is always leaned more towards the comedic side of i mean her her body yeah, of work is and, almost always comedic and but this granted she's like also slowed down to like raise a family and she talks about that like in in, in any interview she says you know i'm a, I'm a mom first and if i can find a role that won't take me away from my kids for very long or we can shoot it in town then maybe i'll consider it but like you know mm. even so though she hasn't found a role near her house that's anywhere in this realm besides like broad comedies but so. it, it you know, it gives us some promise. I mean, there's an actress out here that we know can deliver a really good performance if you give her a really interesting character. Maybe something else will come her way at some point. Um, problem. The problem but is at the, at the same time, though. We're talking about the, is is this a very? I was gonna say we're talking about the film industry, and unfortunately, they doesn't exactly treat actresses the best as they get older. So we'll see. I also guess the role is not very demanding of her. She brings a lot to it, and she brings good energy and good vibes, and she's, like, very sexy in ways that she needs to be and, like, very alluring in ways that she needs to be and also very dangerous um, at times. devil may care, dangerous, yeah. yeah. But, like, I'm not sure how much difficulty that is to perform. Maybe I'm, like, underselling. I think I having know. to thread all of those is what makes it, I think, more impressive or at least what resonates with me, the fact that she has to do all of those things. I really like her in this. Yeah. I should repeat myself. I really, I think she's great in this. Yeah. She should have been the the fact that I, you get all of those from her, though, she's got to weave. And at times she comes off as innocent. Like when at the end of the film, she gen, she has some – there's some – it feels genuine, her praise and her kind of like – congratulating Nina on the performance and how supportive she's being at the very end when she knocks on the door and we realize, Oh, she didn't actually stab her in that scene. Kunis is 100% genuine, I think in that moment. And so that coupled with what she, we've seen kind of a wave we've been writing with that character throughout the film before that she has to thread that performance so carefully so that we feel all of these different emotions about her character. Um, 
and I think I think she does it successfully. Like I I feel all of those things. Like like you said, I feel at the beginning that she's kind of a you know kind of a loose kind of she's she doesn't take herself too seriously, and then also at the same time maybe she's extra motivated and somewhat calculating and manipulative. She's also coquettish. She's also seductive. Um, and then at the end, she seems genuinely supportive. So is she all... a fuss budget? No, she's the exact, no, exact opposite. <laughs> Erica is the fuss budget of the movie. Ken's <laughs> <laughs> fuss budget corner. <laughs> well, to come back to what I asked TJ, uh, I like this movie a lot. I think it's very good. Uh, I think Portman's great. Uh, I really, really like Matthew Libatique's cinematography. Uh, I think there's like a nice underlying running tension and like layer of dread kind of over everything that I think is very effective and works well. Um, I also just think in general, I I think I like movies about obsessive people Mm. and obsessive characters just because um, I I don't remember who said this, but some screenwriter once said um, a story doesn't exist until somebody wants something. And that's like the origin of any good story is like a character wants something. And so like characters about or I'm sorry, movies about obsessive characters are very legible because it's very clear what the character wants and like what they're trying to do. Like the stakes are very clear. Um, an interesting double feature with this could be Whiplash, which is another movie about a obsessive, a obsessive person pursuing the arts. Um, also good double feature with The Wrestler. <laughs> but uh, I like this movie and I think it's very good. Um Anything else? Or do you want to talk about Letterboxd? No, let's get to the Letterboxd of it all. Yeah, we've already teased, we've already teased how popular this movie ha- is, how lasting it is. I'm curious now. Actually, I do it want to talk very about popular. something before that. Because there was an SNL skit about this. Did you see it? When when was it? Was uh, it recently or was it in 2010? It was, it was in 2010. Uh, it was when Jim Carrey hosted and he played... Oh, I the do Black remember. Swan, and I, I think it was Nassim Pedrad was the Nina, um, but then Jim Carrey was the like Mila Kunis character, um, and he just kept being like the the Vincent Cassell character just kept being like White Swan good, Black Swan bad, White Swan like artistic, Black Swan is shit. She's like, I got it, I got it, and then Jim Carrey comes in, he's like, Look, she's beautiful. She already has the part. She's basically a swan herself, and he takes it off. And he's got buffalo wings <laughs> tattooed on the back of his. It's it's weird. It's really really weird. But um, that just shows that. I mean, if it pops up on there, it made like you said a dent in the uh, cultural zeitgeist. Um, there's also a really good episode of uh, a web comic that I sent you guys called Sassy Gay Friend, where uh, uh, he talks to her after the night of her dancing with glass in her stomach, and it's pretty funny. Uh, so on Letterbox, like I said, a lot of people really like this. Um, on the list of top reviews, the first page of top reviews has 12 reviews listed nine out of the 12 are five out of five star reviews um and i'm just going to read you some of these just to give you a sense of what what you'll find here and just to (laughs) note that there's some sexual references in these so just heads up uh top review i relate to natalie portman because i too take every artistic criticism to an endlessly personal level and love jerking off and stabbing myself five stars oh my that's second highest review Natalie Portman just ran up to me, screamed gay rights in my face, then turned into a bird and flew away. I'm not kidding. 
Third highest review. <laughs> Sometimes I, too, cry when I realize that I stabbed myself and not my arch nemesis that I wanted to sleep with, who was with me in my mind from time to time, but also a different person in real life. But only sometimes. You know, when you put it that way, this movie reminds me of Fight Club. Honestly, yes. That's actually a very interesting comparison. At least in that narrow aspect of it. Yeah. Fourth highest rated letterbox review. The Fenman urged to go completely insane. Sixth highest review. Mila Kunis going down on Natalie Portman is modern cinema. Uh, later on. Not a single outfit Natalie Portman wears. This whole movie makes any logical sense, but I want all of them. I disagree. I think they do make logical sense for her character. <laughs> um, four, four and a half star review. Not kidding. I'm so close to becoming this. <laughs> Send help. What is going on? What is going on in people's lives? <laughs> Do you get a yeah? So, do you, do you get a sense from there? Is this more popular with men or women? I see an awful lot of women relating hard to this movie. Is what I was going to say is like okay. people, people. There's a lot of like jokey remarks of like this is me or I relate to this or I'm as I just said I'm so close to becoming this. So, yeah, I think uh, a lot of people really like it and a lot of people are on the movie's wavelength. That's my letterbox corner. Comments, questions. I, uh, I guess I wasn't really expecting <laughs> that reaction from the top reviews. I can see why people. Well, you're, liked... not, you're not very online. What would you think the reaction is? Uh, well, it just seems there's a certain there's a certain level of of self deprecating humor in those those reviews. Yes. So all of the top. Well, re- when a movie gets popular enough, you're going to get that. Kind uh, that's of what I mean. Though the top, all of the top reviews seem to be going for the laughs, and there doesn't seem to be anyone any one review that won over apparently letterbox that was uh, more insightful. That said, the fact that they're all five stars and I, I'm curious, what's the average? Did you mention what the average rating on letterbox I did was not, but I can tell you momentarily um, it is 4.1, which is yeah, very that's high. good. That's, but like 30% of the reviews are five star reviews. 30%. That's high. It's like a weird, like it's like a weird, like not bell curve where like there's a huge jump at the five star and a huge jump at the four star. Not that many four and a halves and not that many below four stars, but yeah. Is this a five star movie for you, Josh? No. I don't know what I rated it. I can't remember. I'm not at all surprised. I'm not at all surprised that this this movie is still popular. Um, I do, and I maybe maybe. It's because of something like that. People can find the humor in the film and in the kind of extremes of the film. Um, maybe it makes people feel better about themselves. I don't know. Um, there's a darkness. <laughs> there's a darkness that you have to be wary of if you're um, striving for perfection in whatever you're doing. And this film kind of like, hey, at least at least you're not this crazy. At least you're not this far gone. Perhaps I don't know. Um, it's clearly resonating, though. I there, there's I Ken's pitch to his friend who's never seen it before. Uh, hey, at least you're not this far gone. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Hey, it could be worse. You could be. Uh, you could be Nina. So at the Oscars, at the Academy Awards, this movie was nominated for Best Editing, and it lost to what? TJ. Uh, the Social Network. Correct. It was nominated for Best Cinematography, and it lost to what? Inception? 
Wally Fister and Inception. Very good. You're going off the top of the head here. I just want everybody to know that. Uh, it was nominated for Best Actress, and it won for Natalie Portman. Um, it was nominated for Best Director, and it lost to who? Ken Dusold? Tom Hooper. Tom Hooper! And it was also nominated for Best Picture, hence its inclusion in this podcast series, and it lost to The King's Speech. Which is weird. The, 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 king, the king speech. speech. King, king speech. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, <laughs> that's also an interesting double feature. The king speech. <laughs> 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 uh, ah, the, the spectrum of the Oscars. Yes. And the spectrum of this podcast series. That's all I have on Black Swan. Is there anything else you guys want to say on Black Swan? Or Darren Aronofsky? Or Natalie Portman? Or Mila Kunis? Or tribalism? Uh, It appears as though Darren Aronofsky, as of 11 hours ago, they reported he is working on a biopic about Elon Musk. um, Oh boy. Which might be the most disgusting thing he ever puts on camera. So we shall see. I wish him well in that endeavor, making a movie, a biopic about Elon Musk. Um, hopefully it'll be good. Uh, he's kind of been, he's kind of da- gone downhill since this in my esteem. Well, I like Mother. I didn't care much for The Whale and I didn't see Noah, but I liked Mother. Um, who knows? Yeah. Uh, next week, alphabetically, what is after B for Black Swan? I believe it's F for The Fighter. As I previously alluded, we'll be talking about The Fighter next week, which is a movie I saw in 2010 and apparently remember very, very little of, with the exception of Christian Bale's Oscar clip. Because I think I watched that on YouTube a few times when he's like talking to Sugar Ray Leonard. Oh. Or whatever. All yes. Right. So come back for The Fighter and hear what I think about it, having not seen it in over a decade. All right. That's all from us at Serious Film People. Please, please tune in again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Have a good week. Wait, did you have some sort of lizzy wet dream about me? Thank you, Ken. A question yeah. Ken asks often. <laughs> if I didn't declare time, I heard Ken ask me if I had a lizzy wet dream about him. Yeah. Do we have HR here at Serious Film People? <laughs> <laughs>